Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. Thank you, Rich. I want to let you know that we were so privileged and blessed yesterday to baptize nine people. Uh, they were baptized into Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit yesterday. Uh, three adults and six children. So what a blessing that was. And uh, we are looking forward to all that God will do in the lives of those that publicly commit their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ. This morning, we are picking up our study in Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1, we got through the introduction to our studies, our series, uh, and and we went through chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I shared with you how, in that one verse, there's so much to contemplate. But very importantly, and, and sort of as a recap and introduction to our study this morning... In the beginning, God creates time, beginning. God created the heavens, the space in which to create, and then the earth, the matter. Don't think of the earth as it exists now, because we know very well the rest of the chapter is the forming of the earth from the raw material, the matter that God created. But he created that bara, in Hebrew, out of nothing. So what we saw last week was that in the beginning, so the first thing God does is he creates a universe with time. And in that universe, he creates the space to continue the creative process, which will be six literal days and then ultimately a seventh on which he will rest, setting up the principle of seven days of a week. By the way, every major culture has a seven-day week because God established the seven-day week. Um, it, it doesn't have anything to do with our solar calendar or our lunar calendar. The seven days come specifically from God's word and God's creative process. But we saw last week he created the heavens and the earth. And so if you study physics, you know on a scientific level that in order for creation to even begin, there needed to be time, space, and matter. And that begins to explain to us the four perceivable dimensions that we are aware of and can see in our world. Now, picking up on that today, we're going to continue to see that that was just the beginning. That was just God setting the stage for the creative process. And as we get into the word today, we're going to see how God proceeded from that point, having created time, having created space, and having created matter. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of your word, the truth that you are the creator of all things, and that you have chosen in your word to reveal to us in very summary terms, very concise way, and non-scientifically really, just how you did this in a way that anyone could understand but doesn't seek to explain the physics of it, but simply gives us the observation of of what we can deduce using science. But all that to say that you shared with us and have shared with us that you began this creative process and continued the creative process until you created mankind. Lord, we look forward to learning more over the next few weeks about that process. And I pray that this morning, as we study your word, that you would touch our hearts and reveal to us the creator himself, Jesus Christ, and that more importantly than the scientific observations 
or the creation science that we would come to an appreciation of our relationship with you, you who are the light of the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to be very careful over the uh, next few weeks to share with you things that perhaps may be somewhat technical so that you can see that you, in fact, have an intelligent faith. But I'm also going to make sure that we all remember that all of those details are important to the extent that they reveal Christ to our hearts and introduce us to a creator and a savior who died on the cross for our sins. Both of those things are the most important things I can share with you, that God is creator and sustainer of the universe, but that he's also savior of mankind. So that balance is my goal. Pray for me that I maintain that and that we get through the word in a way that we become educated, but also that we become encouraged and inspired in the things of the spirit. I want to pick it up in verse 2. For in verse 2, we go on to read now. Now notice now, in order for there to be a now, there had to be something that happened before. And I've just recapped what that was. God creating in time the space and the matter necessary, the raw materials, if you will, for creation. Now the earth was formless. That should help us to understand. And empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So after, immediately after having created the raw materials, the universe, and all necessary for God's creative processes, the triune God, Elohim, for that is the word in Hebrew, it's a plural word. It means at least three, but of course we know he's three in one, amen? The triune God created the earth By the way, he created the earth before he created anything else in the heavens. Now, when I say the earth, let's understand. The earth hadn't been fully created. Just the raw materials necessary to create the universe, it's referred to, all of that matter is referred to as the earth. Because even though scientifically speaking, we understand it to be larger We understand it to be the entire cosmos, the universe. From man's perspective, the earth is centric to God's creation. So don't get too literal, because I don't need to tell you the trees hadn't been created, the stars hadn't been created at this point, and even the earth was formless and empty. It was void. It it, It wasn't what it is today, obviously, because there are still six days of creative processes that need to take place, and then a day of rest. So I think one of the reasons people get tripped up in trying to understand this is they make assumptions about the earth that somehow it was created the way it is today. And of course, we know it wasn't. It was created as a formless void, if you will, some materials. And then God begins the stages of a creative process. So here we are. And contrary to evolutionary theory, the earth preceded the other celestial bodies. That is to say, all of the raw material started at this point in space and time called the earth, but from those materials, God created the universe. So understand it in that way. I want to read a scripture for you so that we all understand. By the way, NASA is desperately looking for life in the universe for a number of reasons. Uh, I don't think the reasons are all that good. I think a lot of times the motivation is to try to disprove God and creation, but they're not getting all that far because... 
While they hope to find life, they have not even found a hint of life, really. Uh, you just need to know they spin the word so that they can get funding to spend gazillions of dollars uh, trying to prove that somehow God isn't the God of the Bible and that he doesn't exist. But as we consider that, one of the things that needs, we know this from our, from our observations of life and biology, is that you need water to sustain life. You need light, but you need water as well. And because of that, they're desperately looking for water on other planets or on asteroids or in places they can find it. And the whole idea is this. If they can find water, then there may be life. Now, here's the thing. When we read in the scriptures in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, this is what Peter has to say about creative processes that God implemented. He says, first of all, and by the way, he explains to us what we can expect in the last days and how people would respond to it. And it's extremely accurate. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. Check that off the list. They will say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In scientific processes, that is referred to as uniformitarianism. It's the idea that what you see is just the continuing of processes that began a long time ago. Okay? Uniformitarianism. The idea that, quite simply, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Which Peter says here is not the case. Because notice we read in verse 5, but they deliberately forget. The idea is that they choose to ignore They choose not to acknowledge that long ago, by God's word, the heavens, that's the space of creation, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed, notice, out of water and by water. Now, how would Peter know that unless God revealed that to him? And God has revealed that, but it's also given to us in the scriptures in Genesis 1. So, the earth was formed out of water and by water. And you notice earth is at the center of God's creative processes, according to Peter. And then we go on to see that by those waters, he also destroyed the earth. And of course, we get to the flood. But for today, it's important to understand that the Bible is consistent. That's the point I'm trying to make in revealing to us that we have an earth-centric creation. Earth-centric. Contrary to evolutionary theory, where the earth is some byproduct of another creative process, the Big Bang Theory, which is, is a fallacy. It's not true. But when you look at the creation, the universe, from the perspective of the Bible, the earth is at the center of God's plan. And that should not surprise you because that was the point of all creation. The earth and that mankind would be placed on the earth and that he would have a relationship with God. When you look at it from the standpoint of evolutionary theory, differently from creation, the universe is some kind of a weird mistake or happenstance or just some anomaly, and we just happen to be here, and wouldn't it be good if we could find someone else in the universe, because then that would help our case in proving that we're just some sort of byproduct or result of a creative process that isn't intelligent at all. It's just sort of an anomaly. Now I ask you, with an intelligent mind, step away from 
what you may have been taught in school. Does that sound realistic? Does that, does that even sound like something that makes any sense? We've been conditioned to think that our way of thinking as creationists is somehow a fairy tale and that those who embrace evolutionary theory have a better explanation of the universe that makes more sense because its background is science, so-called. As the Bible says, falsely so-called. Of course, if you look at it just on the face, intelligent design is the only acceptable explanation for creation. Uh, Those who don't believe in in the God of the Bible, many of them can at least admit that the universe is an intelligent universe and it must have been created by an intelligent designer. Having said that, if the earth preceded all else or the earth was at the center of all the creative processes, it begins to explain to us certain things about our universe that we observe through science, true science. First of all, critics use scientific observation, which is looking out or looking back, to conclude that God doesn't exist. That's their desire. They use scientific observation, that's their goal, to conclude God does not exist. And when you approach a goal disproving the truth, you're going to find some alternative explanation. And they have. It's bogus. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the only hope they have of disproving the creation of the Bible. Now, why would you want to disprove that? Well, ever since the Age of Enlightenment in our world, the idea behind disproving the creation truth of the Bible is that once you prove there isn't a God, if you could do such a thing, you are no longer morally accountable for your sin, your behavior, and your life, and you therefore have no accountability and can do whatever you want without an objection within your conscience. That is the goal of all sinners, all of us. The goal is to disprove God or push God away so that we can do what we want. That is called the sin nature. It It is the result of our parents, Adam and Eve, having defied God and his word. As a consequence, mankind is trying desperately to be independent of God or the thought of God or the accountability of God's word. That's the motivation. Now, their theories are based solely on their view of the past. So they look backward in time through geological records, and they make many assumptions about the past, all of which they cannot prove. So you might say to me, oh, but pastor carbon dating, geological dating, all these things. Okay, you can observe from here looking backward, but you're making an awful lot of assumptions about what life was like in the past. You're embracing uniformitarianism, which says that what we see today is what always was. Now, for sake of argument here, what if it wasn't? What if it wasn't? Well, then your observations of the past aren't warranted and they, they hold no weight. Because you can't know what things were like before they were the way that they are now and that you can observe today. If you can't observe the way things are in the past before they are the way they are today, then you have no theory that holds any merit. And that's the point. Scientifically speaking, you have to make the assumption that when you're looking at the past, things are exactly the way they are today, which is exactly and precisely what Peter said they would do in the last days. Fascinating. Well, they argue, scientists argue, many scientists argue, that creation is just the continuation of a uniform process. So they assume that what we observe today has always existed as such, which we know isn't true. And they assume that nothing has changed since the beginning of creation, which we know from the biblical account isn't true. The flood would be one example. There are others. 
Most specifically, uh, the process itself, which we're observing in God's word in chapter 1. The process was a process. It, It didn't begin with a universe as we know it today. So how can you extrapolate backwards and begin to understand the process? You need God to explain how he did it. It's the only way because no one was on the earth who could observe it at the time. It was communicated to humans through God's Holy Spirit. Moses wrote it down, but we know how he did it. Not that we could recreate it, but we know how God created the universe to the extent that he wants us to understand. So if we try to reconcile biblical creation with evolution, we're going to depart from the truth. Too many pastors are trying to look at science and look at the Bible and reconcile the two. I'm of the opposite opinion. I think you have to look at science and look at the Bible and choose the Bible and throw out science if that science negates or disputes what the Bible teaches us. That makes me a creationist. I believe God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. I believe it's exactly how he described it to us. And I don't think you have to turn off your brain or not think scientifically to embrace that truth. That's what the, those who embrace evolution would tell you. That one is a faith that really, you know, has no basis in science and the other is pure science. First of all, it's pure bunk. And our understanding of creation is from God. And it is, while non-scientific, it is not anti-scientific. In fact, science, I believe, proves that what God said in his word is true. So, the earth or the matter, the raw materials, the atoms in the universe, all of the creative elements were originally created, as we've learned here, as a formless and empty, what they refer to as static matrix of water. Some type of fluid, if you will. The earth was that. It wasn't as solid. That was the first description of the earth as it was created by God. He created the earth, as Peter tells us, out of water and by water. And you see water at the center of all that God speaks of when he speaks of creation. Another example would be Psalm 24, verse 1. Here we learn that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Amen. The world and all who live in it. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So water is at the center of the creative process. That much we understand. Not just water, but water certainly is. He created the earth, though, in complete and total darkness. So he creates a universe and there's no light. Just the space, the time, and the matter necessary to begin the creative process of the earth and the universe. All of it. But it's in complete darkness. And then we're also told something very important. We're told the spirit, or in Hebrew, the ruach, the breath of God. We're told the spirit of the Godhead hovered over the matrix of water. Notice what it says. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Notice the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, God himself, the Holy Spirit. And as darkness was over the surface of the deep, yes, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Was hovering over the waters. It doesn't say that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, which means that this was not something that uh, just suddenly happened through the creative process God spoke the universe into existence as it is, unformed. And then in that process, he is hovering over the waters. What does that word mean? This literally means 
a vibration, to vibrate in the presence of the waters. It's energy. It's the idea of, of infusing life into an otherwise dead and formless creation. I can give you the scientific description of what's being described here, and it's waves of gravitational and electromagnetic energy begins to pulse forth. These are the major forces of all physics and, our, and the description of how our universe exists. Einstein and others tried to come up with a general theory of relativity that tried to reconcile the four major forces of the universe that they observed. Electromagnetism is one of them. Gravity is another. By the way, have you noticed gravity? Have you figured out that if you pick something up and drop it on the floor, gravity is employed, right? Have you ever observed electromagnetism? I'm sure you have. Anytime you turn on a motor, if you look at a ceiling fan, there's a motor, there's an electromagnet. We know these things are true. We know they are. And they come from this moment when God, the Holy Spirit, hovered or infused his creation with life by creating the laws that govern the universe. So this is what's happening and being described to us in very simple terms. We're learning that this is the moment when God takes the raw materials of time, space, and matter and infuses them with life or the forces necessary to govern life. And that's what we're told here in a very simple way. This energy came from the breath of God. The Ruach Elohim, the breath of God, is what begins, excuse me, <clears throat> what begins the process of creation beyond the initial elements. All of the raw material is created. By the way, if you were putting in a driveway, let's say you were putting in pavers, uh, the first thing that would happen is probably Home Depot or some stone yard would deliver pallets of raw materials. You would have everything sitting in your driveway ready to be installed. But until the contractor showed up and began to open up those pallets and actually place those pavers, uh, they would just be raw materials. So what we're seeing now is the creative process in earnest after the raw materials have been provided. And the energy comes from God. Otherwise, it would have just been God creating some blob, and that would have been it. There needed to be a creative process implemented by God, the Holy Spirit, and indeed, that is exactly what happened. And so the unformed earth then coalesced into spherical form because of gravity. So what you're seeing here is the creation of those forces. Strong and weak nuclear forces, electromagnetism, and, of course, gravity. We still don't really understand how they work. We really don't. And what the theory of relativity tries to reconcile is how all four of these observable forces in nature could have come from the same moment and at one point been one force. What they're trying to do is extrapolate backwards to see how these four laws of the universe came into existence. And the Bible tells us right here in, in verse 2, the breath of God, the Ruach Elohim, vibrated or hovered over the static matrix of water and brought all of the laws of physics into place. So no, we don't have an unintelligent faith. We have an extremely intelligent faith. It's just described in terms that anyone can understand. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. All right, good. Now I'm convinced. So the first material body had been formed at a point in space. That's where we're at at this point in verse 2. Now, how long did this entire process take? I got to believe it was somewhat instantaneous. 
Uh, God does not need a lot of time to create. We'll see in a little bit that there's a reason why he broke it up into seven days and stages. And that's more about teaching us some lessons. But for now, there's something missing in the universe without which life cannot exist. And of course, it's light. Now, light is so much more than you and I can even begin to understand. We've already talked about the laws of physics. We've already talked about gravity and electromagnetism and all the things that God has created. But there's something lacking in the creative uh, process or in the universe. And at this moment, we read in verses 3 and 4, And God said, the word of God, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, the problem here for many people, they immediately say, how could there be light without the sun? Well, do I need to remind you that if our sun burned out and exploded, there would still be light in the universe? That there are stars and other bodies within the universe that emit light? Light is so much more than you can imagine. That's just our perception of light, by the way. That's not light. That's just how we perceive light. I'm going to go into a little bit more on this because I think it's important that you understand that after he created the raw materials of the universe in time and in space, and after he infused it with life through the Ruach Elohim and brought all of the laws of physics into place, it is now time to begin the actual creative process whereby the universe, and specifically the earth, can sustain life. And it starts with light. By the way, the Bible has many examples of writers within the Bible likening God to light. And there's a reason for that. It's a, it's a great analogy, but it's a little bit more than just an analogy. The triune God spoke light into the universe, and notice we're told he separated it from the darkness. Now remember, God created the darkness. It was part of the creative process in space and in time. But light was not created. What, Pastor Tim? How could you say that? It just says, let there be light. Well, there's a distinction here. Light was not actually created. He did create the darkness. It was a part of the creative process. Because God is light, as the Bible tells us in 1 John 1 through 5, God is light. And he dwells, as 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us in verse 15, in unapproachable light. So think of this with me. If God is light and he dwells in unapproachable light, how could a God who is light create light in a universe that he created to be dark? No, no, no. It's not a creation of light. God didn't create light. He said, let there be light. It's at this point that something amazing happens in creation. You see, there was simply no light or heat in the universe until God commanded it. I'm going to read a couple scriptures for you to help you understand that the Bible is consistent on this point. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, Isaiah tells us, where God speaks through Isaiah, he says, I form the light and create darkness. Different words. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster, and I, the Lord, do all these things. 
To form the light would be like to form the earth out of existing materials. It's the same idea, same concept. To form out of what's already been created. But create is out of nothing, right? Create is to create something that didn't exist. But to form is to take what's already in existence and bring it into the creative process. And if God is light and he dwells in unapproachable light, at this point in Genesis, it's not that he created light, but that he entered the universe and his very presence in the universe brought light. Are you with me? That's a heavy concept. I have a lot to say about light today. It's the whole study today is really about light. Now, what is light? Light is a good thing. God said so right there in Genesis 1. It's a good thing as it is the most basic form of energy and it is essential for life, just like water is essential to sustain life. So what we're saying, it's a good thing. Light is good, but God is light. Of course, light is a good thing. There's nothing evil about light. Have you noticed in the Bible that these types are used to describe wicked people? Darkness is always associated with wickedness. Light is always associated with God and with goodness. Light. Why? Because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This we must understand. Light is a good thing. A light is also closely linked to our perception of time and distance. Speaking of physics, light years measures distance, right? So if you observe through science the speed of light, you will find that time is linked to light and that time varies. It varies by the outward pressures and influences of mass and acceleration. I know you didn't think you were coming to science class today. You thought Pastor Tim was going to teach you the fairy tale of creation. I don't play like that. See, because God gave me a brain, and I have chosen to use it. I know you have as well. So here's the thing. If light is closely linked to our perception of time and distance, and light is more than you or I might even begin to imagine, it's not just what lights the room or is emitted from these LEDs here above us. It is something so much greater and so much more than you and I can possibly imagine. Can I suggest God is light? And even that doesn't begin to help us to understand our perception of light, because that's all we are is perceiving light. Where is God in the universe? Every time you experience light, you're experiencing God. He is in all things. By him, all things consist. These are the scriptures revealed to us in the Bible. So just to make your brain go pop for a minute, it's light that reveals to us God in the created universe. Jesus is the light of the world. That is our perception and understanding of God in the world but he's the light of the world because God is light. I think I've made my case. Now, what did God do here? Oh, by the way, light is at the very foundation of the laws of physics. E equals mc squared. You ever heard of it? Right? Theory of relativity has this, this, this equation. Uh, e equals mc squared. C is light, the speed of light. Not even light. It's just the speed of light squared. So all of our... Science and our physics is based in light and the speed at which light travels, which, by the way, can be affected by the laws 
of physics, like gravity and electromagnetism. So all of this is linked. It's all physics, and that's about as much as I want to go into today, because in another minute, some of you guys are going to check out. But I'm, I'm going a long way for one point. I don't want anyone to believe for a minute that you believe in a fairy tale. God separated light from darkness. He released the energy which governs the universe. So we have the laws put in place, and now we have the energy that brings life to the universe because God is light. Light is the electromagnetic force system and which maintains all structures and processes in matter. That is a scientific definition. What does that mean? Well, it means that God is light. It means that God has created all things and he continues to sustain all things in the universe in which he created, in which we live, on the earth. This includes so much more than you and I can begin to imagine. Visible light, certainly. Visible light. It includes visible light. But, as we well know, it includes shortwave radiations and longwave radiations. For example, shortwave radiations are ultraviolet or x-rays. Those things we know exist. We can't see them, but we know they exist. We perceive them through scientific observation. Also, longwave radiations includes infrared light and radio waves. These things exist naturally. We, we don't create those. We use them to communicate sometimes. We use them for different technologies, but we didn't create infrared or ultraviolet light or x-rays or radio waves. We didn't create those things. We've created devices to utilize those things, but God created those things. That's so important that you understand that because he created light. Those things are light. Light is more than just light. It's all of these things that we're seeing described for us here. By the way, it also includes some other things you might be familiar with. Heat, sound, electricity, magnetism, and molecular interactions at the atomic and quantum level. Light is quite simply life. And God said, let there be light. Let there be life. The only way that life could exist in this universe is if God himself, who is light and dwells in unapproachable light, said, let there be light in this otherwise dead and formless environment. Do you see the personal creator say amen? Because a lot of people see these processes and think that somehow the creative process isn't personal. That God wasn't directly involved in creation. I'm going to go step, a step further. He is creation. The Bible tells us over and over again. He is creation. He's the creator and he is creation. And we have been chosen by God to have a relationship with him as his creations. Okay, that's a lot. But I think you've gotten the point. So what happened next? Well, what freaks a few people out now is, how is there a day and a night without the sun? I got news for you. The day and the night are not governed by the sun. What? No, they're not. They're governed by the rotation of the earth. The sun just helps us to mark it because at a fixed point in space, there's a light source. Not the only light source, by the way, because we have stars and the moon. But there's a fixed light source that I believe is what? Four light four minutes away by the speed of light, something like that. And I'll tell you what, that light source keeps us alive. It's true. It's true. 
But at this point, there doesn't need to be a sun to have a day and an evening. How do I know that? Because the sun, the moon and the stars aren't created until verse 14. 14 through verse 19 of this chapter. So use logic. Can there be a day and a night without those celestial objects? Well, I hope so, because God said there was. Amen? So what is all this about? Well, clearly, he started the rotation of that earth. That, again, was somewhat formless. There was still work that needed to be done. But he started the rotation of the earth so that the length of a day was established. Why is it so important that the length of a day is established? Because God wanted it to be that way. Because that was important to the creative process, and God chose to create in this way. Oh, but pastor, why couldn't it be millions of years? Because God didn't say it was millions of years, and God doesn't need millions of years to create. He could have done it in one nanosecond, but he chose to break these processes up in literal days for a purpose, for a reason. Don't dispute what God's word says because science can't prove it. By the way, I think science proves intelligent design and creation science more than it does anything else. But having said that, this isn't about trying to prove God or defend God. Scientific observation of our universe does not defy the biblical narrative. Amen? Okay. So clearly, the light that God commanded was something other than the sun. The sun emits light, but the light that he created was energy. Light existed prior to the establishment of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Light, or energy, among other things, is more fundamental than light givers, such as the sun or stars. Clearly, these rays of light, energy, emanated from one direction in space. So, whatever the source of that light was, I assume God himself, the planet begins to turn at the speed that God wants it to turn. And so we have morning and evening, or evening and morning, the first day. So that shouldn't surprise anyone. And this must be recognized as a literal day and not some extraordinary length of time. For example... I'll read it again. It says, God called the light day, okay, and the darkness he called night. That's from the earth's perspective, because at night, there isn't direct light from the, whatever the light source was at that time or from the sun today. But notice he says, and there was evening, that is when the light was no longer perceived on the earth, and then there was morning. When the light was then perceived again on the earth the first day. No one was there, just God. There's no life beyond God in the universe at this point. But he communicates to us, that's how the first day transpired. Now, if you can't accept that, I don't know why you read your Bible. Because if you can't embrace in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, as described here, then how are you going to embrace that at a certain point in time, God entered the space of creation, the heavens, as a baby, physically becoming part of the matter of the universe, actually inhabiting a body that is stitched together by God's creative design from the molecules and the elements that he created on day one. That's what Jesus did. Honestly, that's harder to believe in some ways Because it's incredible to think that God would even bother. That he would love us so that he would send his own son. And more importantly, to die 
on a cross for our sins, be raised on the third day, to come again to set his kingdom up on earth, to judge the living and the dead. That, to me, is more incredulous because why would God love us that much? But God does love us that much. The creative process, God, in order for God to be greater than this creation, it basically means he can do anything, and he has. That shouldn't be difficult for you to embrace. But many people dispute that, and therefore, how are you going to embrace the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ or the resurrection of his human body or the promise of his return? If you can't even accept that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, as described here on the first day, you're going to have to embrace the Bible as truth if anything beyond these verses is going to make any sense in Genesis, let's go further, Exodus, Numbers, or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Revelation. Well, I don't know if I can. Well, I, I, I can only tell you, you must believe that God exists. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, the Bible tells us. You must believe that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's the relationship part of this. All the science I shared with you today isn't to make you think, oh, Pastor Tim did his homework. It's to show you you have an intelligent faith in an intelligent God who loves you. That's the point. By the way, getting back to the literal day and not some extraordinary length of time, the word day, or in Hebrew, yom, is first used here. It refers to a natural solar day. Again, I've already explained it couldn't be the sun that provided the light, but still a natural solar day that is calculated on the basis of the rotation of the earth. All the days of creation week were of the same duration. In fact, the Old Testament word is almost always used in this natural way. It's never used to mean any other definite time period other than a literal day. This is especially clear when it's combined with a number like the first day or the second day. Also, when it's combined with definite bounds, evening and morning, a beginning and an end to the day. Neither of these Old Testament usages allow non-literal meanings. So we're not speaking figuratively. Oh, occasionally in the Bible, it's symbolically used in the sense of an an indefinite period of time, such as the day of the Lord. But when it's used with a number and it's used in this way, and you look at the context, such usage is always evident from the context. It means a day. A day. And the use of evening and morning is significant as well. God's work was accomplished. I want you to think about it because I guarantee most of you haven't thought about this. God's work was accomplished during the light. Because the last time I checked, a 24-hour day has a period of darkness depending on the time of the year. It can be half that 24-hour day or significant less depending on where you are on the planet, right? your latitude or longitude, and then, of course, also what time of year because of our diurnal orbit of the earth. You have this, this, this axis. So, so that changes the length of the day and the night. But notice in this first week, God's work was accomplished during the light. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, God is light, so there really can't be any darkness in him. That's true, but for whatever reason... God chose to allow the night on the earth to be a time or a pause from his creative process. That's a lot to take in. But his activity ceased during the darkness. There was nothing to report between evening and morning. Not at all. So each day's work ended at dusk, then came dawn, 
ending the first day. Do you see the message there? That's how we're called to live. Mankind does very well when he goes to sleep when it's dark, wakes up when it's light, works during the day, and rests at night. That's how we're designed to operate, and that's what God is communicating, I think, through the seven days of creation, as well as many other things. So if you look at all that, you think, well, this universe really was created and designed for us. We're at the center of the creative process. But I want to close with a scripture. And if I haven't made my case for creationism, well, I don't really care much about that. What I do care about is that you understand this truth. Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, for we in... 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And notice this. He said, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, or let there be light, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So you see what we're learning here in this scripture. Jesus is the light of the world. He's been revealed to us through the light of Scripture. And we're being given an opportunity to have a relationship with him that's based on a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Godhead. If you miss that, you could have your explanation of intelligent design and creationism down cold. You could teach a college course on it. You can get up here and share as I did today. And you'd still spend an eternity in darkness. I'm going to ask Pastor Russ to come up, and I'm only just going to say this. I know a lot of what I shared you'll forget in about five minutes. I know a lot of the things I shared may have been no interest to some of you, extreme interest to others. But the most vital truth that I have shared today is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Give your life to Jesus Christ, who is the creator of all things and has created a universe that he could enter, not just as light and the creator himself, but as the savior of mankind who came and died on the cross for your sins, rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. Harden not your heart. Give your life to him. For all of this information means nothing if that isn't the truth in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all these scientific observations that help us to understand some of what you did. But actually, none of that really matters if we don't know you. You wanted us to know how you created the heavens and the earth. You wanted us to know the process. You could have just said, God created everything. But you went to great lengths to communicate to us the truth, perhaps just so that we don't dispute it. Or perhaps for those that have a critical mind and are somewhat skeptical of creation science. But Lord, your love has convinced more people to give their hearts to you than any scientific argument or Bible study like this has ever done. It's your unconditional love for us in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, that causes us to understand the truth that you love us 
and that you want a relationship with us, your creation. So we give our hearts to you afresh and anew. And for those of us who maybe for the first time, maybe one of the stumbling blocks was that they, that person just couldn't get beyond the scientific observations of science falsely so-called. Lord, you've given us enough to at least think about today. But I pray that every heart here today would understand the truth that you did in the beginning create the heavens and the earth, but that you became flesh and made your dwelling with us, that we might have a relationship with you, that you might pay for our sins as we confess our sins and usher us into glory for all eternity where we will spend forever and ever and ever in your presence, in the presence of God who is light, Lord, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.